Okay, well, welcome back after two weeks of eating good food or bad food, depending on how we want to slice it. But uh, judging from myself and my patients, a lot of perhaps not perfectly healthy food. But at any rate, this, uh, this is good stuff that we're about to dig into. So it's, uh, we're back in 1 John chapter 2. And just a reminder, uh, Jay went through the first two verses of that. We'll just take a couple of moments. Uh, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And Jay went through that in a lot of good detail, so we won't uh, go back through that. But it kind of sets up verse 3 where we're going to pick up in that you've got this advocate with the Father. And we won't go back through, but we know the Bible doesn't teach universalism where he's just the advocate with every human being on the planet but for those who are in a particular saving relationship with him. And so it's really kind of a pretty natural thing that we would look at verse 3, where it says, by this we know that we have come to know him. And then it's going to give some ways that that happens. And it, it is pretty natural. If you, you know, picture yourself under condemnation and uh, being rightly guilty, and you say, well, my advocate is that one, or at least that's who I want it to be, uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous, uh, who is the perfect, sinless, all-powerful propitiation for our sins. That's the one you want to know that you know. Um, you sometimes hear that phrase. It's not, uh, it's different ways it's put, but things like it's all about who you know. Well, this, this is one where that's pretty true, and the one who knows us, uh, we want that to be Jesus. So, so let's dig into that. So verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. Before we even get into where that goes, uh, this is one of those ones where it is kind of interesting to look at the tenses if you've got ways to do that. So the first no is in the present tense, so that's that idea of this continuing action in the present. So we can know in an ongoing way that we have come to know him is in the perfect tense. And that's where you've got this completed action that has ongoing results. So if that action, that um, knowing of him uh, has happened in the past, then we can continue to know that we know him, that we, and again, it's a very specific way, not just know about him uh, or know some things about Jesus, but literally know him in that experiential uh, way that certainly in the context of Scripture and in this letter uh, involves those who are truly his, that are saved, that are forgiven, uh, and that know him in that sense. So that's how we can know that we have already come to know him is kind of what we're going to be able uh, begin to talk about. There are different ways, that, you know, depending on who you uh, listen to, you can break it into 
different words and letters and so on, but the, the idea that there are three or four, maybe some people spread it to five, uh, I would say four themes that keep being repeated and repeated in here about, this is how you really know that you're following Christ. So it's both a reassurance for those of us that can see those things in our lives that God is doing, and, and a warning for those who, that's really not there. We call ourselves a believer, but, but these things aren't there. I put them in the little um, play of letters of plot, perseverance, love, obedience, and a trust in the truth. Those, those things keep getting repeated over and over. So perseverance, where uh, later on it's going to say um, that John knew they weren't, these people were not of us because they didn't continue with us. They went out from us because they weren't of us. They didn't persevere. Love is going to be uh, landed on over and over. And we're about to look at both obedience and then uh, love. And they're going to be kind of tied together. So we don't always think of love and obedience as going to together. Uh, you sometimes think of, I don't know, maybe the military or a not great parent-child relationship where it's just all about fear or I just have to do this, so that's why I'm obeying. But in Scripture, it's very much tied together with love is, is the proper connection. So in a similar verse later on, 1 John 5, 11 to 13 says, The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So again, this connection we want to have of knowing we have that. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. So there they talk about having the son of God, similar to knowing the son of God. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So again... Um, slightly different word, but that no idea of it's not something you just kind of hope or, you know, Benjamin Franklin was kind of known for as he was dying, saying something like, well, here goes who knows what. You know, basically not really knowing what was ahead of him, uh, but that we're given uh, these words and these teachings so that we can know. So, and then the next thing on your sheet there, and I didn't give you hardly any blanks, just a couple on the back. Um, after two weeks of holiday, I figured you need to just chill and listen. So, uh, it is right and good to test ourselves whether we are in the faith. So, you'll occasionally hear that, you know, oh, you should never even question that. Um, particularly sometimes it seems to go along with if you, if you walked an aisle or if you, you did some action that you're kind of relying on that was when uh, I became a believer that you know you write that down in your Bible or on some card or something and and you should never question that and scripture just doesn't agree with that so a um, couple of passages um, we could look at many but uh, so 2 Corinthians 13 5 says test yourselves to see if you are in the faith so pretty straightforward. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? 
And of course, this, this letter is just full of tests, and particularly those four just on repeat, uh, going back to them repeatedly. Uh, or Matthew 7, 16, very well known, you will know them by their fruits, so whether it's looking at ourselves or even someone else, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So the, the fruit of our lives, and we'll look at more detail, so we won't hit a whole bunch of passages there, but... But just, you know, for starters to realize it actually, and, and that doesn't mean we wake up every morning and just start doubting or wondering. That's, that's not the idea. But it's also not going the other side of just assuming because of what somebody said at one time or, or we think we did, if the fruit in our life really doesn't back that up, then, then it's appropriate. So again, not a... Not a fearful doubting uh, for believers, but a, a realistic looking at whether we are in the faith. All right, and then uh, the second one, those who know Christ savingly will keep his commandments. So the second part of that verse, uh, we already saw, by this we know that we have come to know him. It, and then it goes into, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It always strikes me that, you know, John is often called the disciple of love. Uh, and as Jay reminded us last time, but he was also one of the sons of thunder. And he just kind of is very straightforward with that. So if you say that you've come to know him and don't keep his commandments, uh, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Pretty strong words, but I do think he speaks the truth in love. He, he frequently calls the people he's writing to beloved uh, about a half a dozen times. And I do think he loves them. But when you love somebody and you think they really are not what they, where they think they are, uh, I think of that in medicine a bit, where sometimes you have to give news that isn't very welcome but it would be super unloving to just brush that under the rug because it's uncomfortable. So uh, John definitely doesn't sweep things under the rug. He's very straightforward uh, in his teaching. And, and you probably all know uh, a fair number of folks who would, be, would call themselves believers. And you're not, hopefully, trying to be judgmental or harsh or... You know, they've got to get every detail of theology lined up uh, right where you think it should be, but more, there just really isn't any evidence that they're walking with the Lord, and yet they seem so confident. And so that's where John is. It's almost like a, a cup of cold water in the face, I guess, to just kind of go, yeah, no. If, if none of this, if this obedience is not there, uh, then you're not... You're not a believer. And so what, what we want to look at a little further, though, because it gets a little harder than that, you go, well, how much obedience do, does there have to be or how much disobedience? Uh, because, again, partly, depending on your personality, you may really have a hard time with that because you know you don't do everything that you should and you do things that you shouldn't. Uh, so... There is going to be some help we can get. John is 
Just likes to start though with, you're either here or you're here, uh, and to get us thinking at least in those terms. All right, and then um, seeking to please him by keeping his commandments is, these would be characteristics of someone who is keeping his commandments. Um, so James 2.14, just some other passages to kind of think about as you kind of think, you know, where, where am I with the Lord? Where is somebody else? What, what's a reasonable way that we're being called to? So James 2.14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can, and I like this translation, can that faith save him? And then jump down to verse 17, even so faith if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. So again, James was one that, uh, a letter that Martin Luther and others wrestled with a bit, but it, it really makes sense that it's not putting them in faith and works so much in opposition as saying, a real faith will have those works. The, the two will go together and one will testify of the other. Or Ephesians 5.8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So there, there should be that I mean, just again, this, some, a lot of these things are pretty basic, but there should be that fruit, that working out of our faith where we can see, okay, I can see God working in me over time. Um, and there, there are definitely areas where we can struggle and go, is he? Am I really seeing? But, but we should over time, and, and we're going to look at some things about how to make that perhaps a little more uh, basically work with God in that a little bit more. All right, and so, yeah, obviously not perfectly, so we don't keep his commands perfectly, uh, but it should be keeping them from the heart. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So right in this letter, we've just passed that verse that says if, if we're trying to achieve perfection and that's what we're looking for, that we're, we're going in the wrong direction. Very familiar territory is Romans 7, 15, and, and uh, we won't take the time to go through that, but I do think the, the evidence is that Paul was speaking as a believer. For one thing, he says that he agrees with the law and loves the law in the state that he's in. But he says in verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And I think somebody said this a couple weeks ago, but the... Uh, you know, part of it is, yes, we should see um, obedience, but there's also the conviction of sin. I've, I've uh, mentioned at least a couple of times, but it was just always very pointed to me. One of my kids who became a believer um, 
would still sin with their tongue a bit. They had a rather sharp tongue. Um, but I remember saying to them, because uh, they were kind of distraught at one moment in their teens with, why do I keep saying these things that just seem to come out of me? Um, and I could very honestly say, you know, you do, but your repentance is amazing. And it was so sweet to see God working in them. And I do think that's, that's another uh, true repentance is something that we're told is granted to us from God. And so when you see somebody that is truly sorry for their sins and shows the evidence of godly repentance, um, that's also a strong work of God. And this, this thought that it should be from the heart, Isaiah 29, 13, is an interesting verse. It says, the Lord said, because this people draws near with their words and honors me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. So kind of looking at, even though the... The obedience isn't perfect. It's not that we never sin. We always do exactly what God says when he says. I mean, we should be seeking that, but uh, unless somebody wants to testify other words, otherwise, um, that's not the experience. It's more the Romans 7 struggle a lot of the time. Um, but it should be seeking that our real desire is to pursue the Lord and to please him. And this Isaiah 29 is talking about kind of the opposite of that. And you remember the Pharisees that Jesus would often bring them to task. Um, we won't read it all, but Matthew 23, about two-thirds of that chapter is all the woes on the Pharisees. Uh, and there's a place where uh, Jesus says, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Um, let me put you to work for a second. Can somebody explain what, what was his point in that you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel? Gosh. You're carefully getting out the nitty-gritty fine details while ignoring much bigger issues. Right. Comparable to other analogies like you pack the pinhole in the bucket, but the bottom's missing. Okay, good. There is... No point to dealing with the tiny minutiae if you're going to ignore the big, much more devastating issues that are right in front of you. Right. Good. Anybody remember what the weightier matters were, the camels? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. So, big things. And it, it is interesting. At the end of that sentence, Jesus says, uh, you should have attended to those things without neglecting the others. So he isn't even saying, you know, the little things of the law were unimportant, but they, that we really should have priorities that if, yeah, if you're gonna, uh, again, I often think of, you know, shout at, intimidate and abuse your wife and then try to figure out exactly when, um, the tribulation's gonna happen, you, you're probably getting things a little uh, out of priority. All right, so, and then the other thing that, that we see in Scripture is that that obedience, so it should be from the heart, it's going to be imperfect, 
but it should be growing. It should be increasing. And I know we've looked at this passage a fair bit, but it is just such a good embodiment of this principle in about the shortest passage I know. Uh, if you would, turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Again, it just parallels so well with this First John. Second uh, Peter 1, starting with verse 4, talks about he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So you kind of start out with these great, fabulous uh, promises. Uh, and really, as we both in God keeping those promises and even in our embracing those promises so that we're less likely to be uh, having sinful desires for temporary things. He says we can become partakers of the divine nature. But he's, you know, again, if that verse was in isolation, you might say, well, the promise just does it. And so we let go and we let God and, and he just keeps his promises and we are able to become partakers of the divine nature. But he goes right from there into, for this very reason, the reason that you have these promises, it doesn't mean you kick back. It says you make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, he says it again, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So you've got uh, a really good encapsulation of what, what should this obedience look like? Well, it's depending on God's promises that ultimately he's the one that's going to get you there. That when you stand in his presence um, in, in the uh, last verses of Jude, uh, blameless, that's because God did that. Uh, but we have a part. We're, we're called in the midst of those promises to be, make every effort uh, to be all the more diligent. Uh, so, you know, we see this over and over and over again in Scripture, so we should just kind of get used to it. God's ultimate power, but our full involvement. Uh, both uh, are things we're called to. And that, that and it, you perhaps caught that word increasing, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. So we should be working on our own sanctification, knowing that in the end it's God who works it in us. <clears throat> it's a slightly different context uh, because it's specifically talking about Timothy becoming a minister for the gospel. 
but or, or growing as a minister of the gospel. But I think it, it still applies to our sanctification in general. First uh, Timothy 4.14, Paul says to Timothy, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance or the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So again, you've got this, wow, I mean, presbytery came, prophetic utterance, I mean, a pretty miraculous uh, beginning to what Timothy's going to do, and you would almost think, well, I guess, I'm, I mean, I've got it made. I started with this, this uh, powerful laying out of hands. But then Paul says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And that, in that use of salvation there um, you know, doesn't mean in the end he earned literally his justification, but more his the sanctification. Um, but main point being, yes, you've had this blessing, you've had this special laying of hands on you, but... Uh, you need to take pains, be absorbed. I mean, that's pretty strong wording that he's using so that your progress will be evident to all. So I think a lot of times when we're not seeing growth and we're kind of wondering what God is doing, we need to look a little bit more at are we obeying? Are we following the, the commands and principles? Um, some of you are in the man up group where we are going through heart of addiction uh, of course, Jay has taught that many, many times at the prison. But one of the things I notice, it's just really good because you, you pick one or more things that you feel like are habitual, spiritually harmful things, uh, addictions you could call them, but um, things that are having a negative impact on your spiritual walk. And you begin to look at uh, put-offs and put-ons that would be needed for you to really begin to work on that. And it's, it's all there in Scripture, uh, but somehow, uh, you know, speaking for myself, there are certain areas that, eh, you know, you don't quite give much attention to or you just expect it's going to improve. And it's just very helpful to actually put scriptural principles, you know, kind of the obvious things we all know, but to do it and to do it with other people is even better. If there's at least uh, one other person who kind of knows, okay, I'm, I'm really trying to focus on this and work on this. Uh, just basic principles of scripture and sanctification, but um, good reminders. Uh, yeah. resting and trusting in Christ and working, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's got to be a balance because it's, it's, it's all Christ. Mm -hmm. It's all Christ. Yes, that's true. And yet, the First Peter verse especially says there's some things we should be doing. But it's not that the doing gets us any credit. Yeah, but yeah. I, mean, I think there, I mean, I think, and I know that the church of that, the, 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 the intent 
was to hold fast to, to salvation by grace alone. Yeah. Right? It's all Christ. Right. And that was the intent to hold on to that. And I think, I guess there's, there's got to be a balance between it's easy to fall off one way or the other. Yeah. All, all Christ, I got to work. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. yeah, no, I do get that. I think the only thing I would say is I, I probably would push back a little on, I mean, I know what you're saying, but balance in the sense that, you know, Spurgeon, I, again, I always get partial quotes here, but, um, you know, talked about why do we need to either balance or mediate between friends uh, that human responsibility and God's sovereignty are friends. And I really do see that. It's not just a clever way to put it. You know, it literally is it's working with confidence. It's confidence in God. That the, the whole reason you bother to work hard is because God's promised, right. I've got this. You're, I'm going to make this effectual. So what you do isn't going to be just a big waste of time, and you're going to fail in the end. You're absolutely going to. But you're still supposed to put yourself wholeheartedly into it. Right. Yeah. So, so kind of when we talk about marriages, it's, it's 100%, 100%, not 50-50. Okay. It's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, we work hard. Yep. Yes, and it's all Christ. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's not, good. Not, they don't contradict. Right. Them. They don't butt heads. Yep. Okay. All right. So then uh, the third point there: the keeping of Christ's word is an indication of our love for Him. So verse five says, "But whoever keeps His word." In him the love of God has truly been perfected by this, and here we're going to hear it again, we know that we are in him. So not only keeping his word helps us to know that we are in him, uh, but the love of God has truly been perfected in that. And just, you know, I mean, we, we've heard that before, I suspect. But why would keeping... God's word, keeping his commandments, be an expression of our love for God. Think about that a minute. So, I mean, you might say it's, it's an expression of our fear of God, it's an expression of our, uh, but explain that a little bit. Why, why would scripture say that keeping his commandments is a way to show perfection of God's love? I think just simply part of it would be that um, it just seems obvious in one sense that yep. you trust him, right? You, you're, you're saying that what you say is right. And so if I align my life to your life, I'm saying that you have the right answers in life. That's what we want of our children. We say, do this, don't do that. Right. And, um, and they rebel and push against that because they got to test the waters. So they're not sure. When they're young, they kind of, in one sense, trust us, that things will be there, we'll right. do the things we said, but, but a mature faith is saying that I fully trust, I'm not leaning on my understanding. This seems like if I do this, discipline my children this way, do this or do that, but, but your word seems to be indicating this. So if I lean on what you say wholly, uh, that obedience is, uh, you're, you're trusting him. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I believe you. I believe everything that you say. Right. I fall short of that, but I believe you. Per- particularly when you don't quite understand how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. I think also, for me, it's the idea of we want to be pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. but we can be pleasing to God when He floors me still. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that's in Scripture because <laughs> I might have concluded the same. That yeah, we can't please him. Um, so I guess one other question about verse five: in Him, the love of God. Do you think that's uh, the love of God for us or our love for God? I think it's a picture of Christ when you are obedient to the Word, mm -hmm. as Christ was obedient to the Word. That okay. is the picture. Of okay. Of love for God, and so it is both him and us. It is the love of God has been perfected. It's showing that's what it looks like when you're obedient. You're looking like Christ, and you're looking like the grace that's working inside of you. Okay, I like that, but I'm not sure you answered the question. <laughs> so, okay, okay, all right, gotcha. Josh. And building on that, there's not really a distinction. God placing his love on someone inherently means he will bring them to love him. And it's impossible for a fallen man to choose of his own will without God bringing it about to place his love on God. Okay. Therefore, God loves you and you love God in the more personal Christian sense rather than just common grace. Is two sides inherently. Mm -hmm. You guys are good. All right, here's here's the official quote, which is going to be very similar to what you just said. And it's not official as far as being the word of God. It's a theologian. Uh, he says the phrase "the love of God" may mean God's love for us or our love for God. Scholars are divided, and it's hard to decide. But perhaps it does not really matter in that if. God's love for us is perfected in us, we will also love God. And no one can really love God without first experiencing his love. So the two concepts are intertwined. So, nice. That was uh, well put. So, and there's lots of other places. John says that frequently. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. First uh, John 5, Three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Um, I like that, that that verse ends with, and his commandments are not burdensome. It's just a good reminder. And I also think that's a good sign that your heart is beginning to align with uh, Christ. When you see that as, oh, I just have to do all these things versus... They're not burdensome. They're, they're meant for my good. They work out in my good. Um, and some of them may seem hard in the moment, but they're in the end uh, for our good and for our benefit. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's pretty hard for us to come up with commands of God that are not directed towards our good. I mean, very few of them. I mean, I don't even know that I can think of one that's just for because I said so. I mean, sexual sin, because the sin against your own body is, is the worst of all. You're sinning against yourself. Right. Um, you know, the, the commands in Philippians chapter 2 about put others ahead of yourself. I mean, we can all think of examples in the secular world, in the workplace or whatever, where you see someone's selfishness actually destroyed their career. Mm -hmm. And other things about, um, you know, even the, the sacrifices were to point them to the true sacrifice of Christ 
So mm-hmm. all of those commands, they weren't just, hey, I love the, the smell and aroma of, of sacrificing bulls and things and lambs. Right. It was the whole purpose of that was to point them to their ultimate salvation, which is the sacrifice of Christ in their stead. Right. Right. Well, in Romans eight twenty eight would uh, would affirm that that particularly in uh, specifically in believers that all things are made to work together for good. Some of them are very uncomfortable in the moment, but yeah, I would agree. All right. Um, so I gave you. I always shudder to do that, but a working definition of biblical love. Um, standing on the shoulders of others, that was, that was the best put together I could come up with. You may come up with something a little different, but uh, I put agape love is other-centered, self-sacrificing, willful devotion and affection for the ultimate good of the other person. And it's manifested in actions and words that promote that ultimate good. So I do want to think about this just for a minute because we're going to talk a lot about love in 1 John. And we want to be at least in the ballpark of here's what Scripture uh, is saying about love. Um, So other-centered and self-sacrificing. And again, we're not... We're not going to stop and yet have a few a full look at biblical love. That would be a really long thing, and we're going to hit it quite a bit as we go along, but I want to at least have a starting working definition. Uh, willful affection is important because uh, this idea that it's not just a good feeling. It's not just um, uh, where we're infatuated with something or someone. Uh, but it's, it's a decision of the will. Um, and the word affection I really like because it includes emotion, but it's much more than that. So like when uh, <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards wrote religious affections, he went to great pains to try to define that. And he talked about it as a fixed inclination of the soul. Uh, so the soul being much more than the emotions. <clears throat> but that, you know, again, boiling it down to human things, uh, you should have an affection for your spouse. There should be a, uh, a willful, decisive inclination for their good. And so when something hurts that spouse or threatens that spouse, there should be a lot of reaction. Uh, again, including emotions, but, but just decisive and, uh, and willful. And so that whole idea of, uh, and again, I feel like these are things you all know well, but where somebody says, well, I'm leaving you because I, I just don't love you anymore. I can't help it. I just don't, is, is so not uh, what Scripture is talking about. Uh, scripture, we, we don't get let off the hook like that. Like it's just a feeling that can come and go and we don't know. Now, the feelings might come and go, but the love, the uh, biblical love, uh, should not. And if it does, it's because of our own (coughs) sin, not because of some passing uh, feeling that came and went. Um, And the ultimate good of the other person, again, that has to be, you know, when Chris or anybody else says things like, um, 
Well, unbelievers can't love in this full sense. They can love in some sense. It even says the love of money. But, you know, so the word is used with unbelievers as well as believers, but not in the sense of that inclination of the soul toward the ultimate good of the person because they don't know really what the ultimate good of the person is. If Christ isn't in your uh, heart and mind is the ultimate good, then you're not going to be able to, even if you wanted to, work toward their ultimate good. Um, and again, the idea that it's manifested in ac affections, actions, and words that promote that ultimate good. So, you know, there's going to be a place in chapter 3, I think it is, of First John, where it says, if you see that your brother has a need and you close your heart to them, how can the love of God uh, be in you? So it's that idea, you can see when love, because it should show itself, it should manifest. So one other thing I would say is, um, it should show itself in actions. Once in a great while, um, there's one person I occasionally think of, and I'm not going to really judge his heart, but just the way he came across was, he was very harsh. Um, he was a, uh, actually he was a um, native-born Haitian, uh, and there are many things to admire about him, I'll say that right up front. But he was really hard on people, seemingly to the extreme, and at times uh, people would say, he's just not very loving, and he'd say, you know, I love people by taking care of them. And that was hard because it was very hard to see him as, as Christ-like. But he was, he was certainly hardworking and he was doing things for folks. And again, only God really knows. I only use him as an illustration because it was just one of those times where I was wrestling a bit with it. And we might feel like we're occasionally, again, I think this is the more rare side of the coin, but where we're very, we work very hard and we, we seem like we're very sacrificial. Um, but I look at 1 Corinthians 13, 3, where it says, I can give all my possessions to feed the poor. And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Because part of us can sometimes take that so far on the side of it should show itself in actions that we think the actions are the love. Usually I would say you're not going to do some of these self-sacrificing things or seemingly self-sacrificing. There's a quote, I, again, I wish I could remember exactly how it was put, but it was something about um, someone who is very self-sacrificing, much to the detriment of all the other people. And it was basically the idea of, you know, you, you see a sad sack that says, Oh, it's okay. No, I'll take care of it. It's all right. But it's, it seems like it's more to have the martyr complex than to really love the person. So I don't want to get too lost on that one. But So the actions, it, it should manifest itself. And yet there seems to be this heart uh, condition, this affection that should drive that, this inclination of the soul, but involves our will. So, any thoughts, feedbacks, comments?
comments on all that? Okay. Well, I don't know that that was crystal clear, but at any rate, we'll, we'll press on. Um, all right, number four, keeping Christ's commands means we live in the way that he lived. So that's uh, verse six that says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So abides, uh, that's a common thing. John uses that word a lot, uh, abiding in him. Um, it portrays, let's see, I guess I gave you at least a part of that, uh, habitual fellowship with Christ as an enduring, active relationship. So it's, it's more than just kind of a position of kind of where you are, but it's this remaining in relationship. Uh, includes fellowship, friendship, dependence, harmony, communion, obedience, so when it talks about abiding in Christ, again, almost like you're staying in the house with somebody, uh, but in a very close relationship, not just positionally in the house, but, but truly in relationship. Um, and abiding in Him should result in being increasingly like Him. That's true even like you look at Proverbs where it talks about uh, Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Or 22, 24, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. So that's even, you know, kind of who we hang out with, who we spend time with, who we abide with in some sense tends to affect us uh, much more powerfully would be 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where it says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So that, that sense of, of meditating on, looking on Christ, that we are slowly transformed by that as we see. And that should be a, a little bit of a test of how, how well or how fully or how fixedly are we look, looking at um, Christ. Is, does his uh, way of, of doing things, his, his character and so on begin to show itself in ours? You think of, uh, where you see a good uh, father-son or mother-daughter relationship and you just go, you know, they are just so much like their mom. Or, um, and that's, you know, again, if there's that sweet relationship, then there's that desire to be like them. They've been around them. They've been in relationship with them. And you see that reflected. So let me ask another question. In, in what specific ways might we be expected to walk in the same manner as Christ? Because that's a little daunting. You, you say, well, we're supposed to walk in the same manner that Christ did. So what, what do you think are some actual applications, some specific 
ways that we should be seeking to do that. Because otherwise we kind of read these things and go, oh, that's a great idea, but don't apply it. So what can you think of, Josh? Okay. So, and that's actually that first verse, John 13, 15, I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. That's what Jesus said to the disciples right after he had washed their feet. All right, anything else come to mind? So humble service would be a good one. Good. Yeah, and, uh, and again, Jesus even did that, even though he was God incarnate. Uh, he didn't skip prayer. He uh, was definitely a man of prayer. Okay. Yep, Becky. Uh, spreading the gospel, uh, that was Jesus' primary focal point was to tell everybody that Jesus <coughs> saved, and so we need to do that. Good. Okay. We're so spreading the gospel, yep. The Great Commission, yeah. Anything else come to mind? No. Lying. What's that? No lying. Okay, good. Um, yeah, there's perfect truth in him. Yep. Wendy? Uh, obedience to the Father, okay. to his word. And so man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. So that was even Jesus saying, I have to live by the word, so he's... He is uh, diligent, even in, he is the word, but he's diligent in the word. Good. Okay, yep. Josh, you have one? Mine was actually pretty similar to hers, okay. and I was going to say submission to God's will, like Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, asking for the cup to be taken away, but mm -hmm. praying, not my will, but yours. Good. Okay. We could probably make a pretty long list, but go ahead. Good, great, okay. It's a good thing to ponder the way he did things. Probably the one I see occasionally misused is when he overturned the tables. Uh, people sometimes use that as a good excuse for anger and, and outburst and go, wow, Jesus did that. But. One of the good things away from that is the zeal for his father's house. Good, yep. I mean, I think that's critical too that we have a zeal for the church. Yeah. That's one thing that you see in, in the students we talk to at UT, they just they have no concept of the value of the church. Mm -hmm. And really they don't value the sacrifice that Christ uh, made for the church. Mm -hmm. Whoever said it over there, he gave himself up and died for his church, not just for us individually. Right. But for his church. Sure. And the value of being plugged into and actively involved in both serving and receiving from mm -hmm. the, the local church. Yeah, good. Yeah, there there clearly is a a real takeaway from that. Uh, so, okay. Um, we could do more, but uh, a couple other verses that specifically um, speak of our imitation of Christ. Ephesians five two: Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So some of the 
following of his example uh, is not easy stuff, suffering or self-sacrifice. Um, and it certainly can seem impossible and would be, um, and we won't do it perfectly, but to even attempt uh, without the Spirit of God working in us or God's promises uh, would be futile. Philippians 2.12 is, is a well-known passage that certainly applies. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So one of those passages, one of many, where you just see we're to work at it, uh, we're to attempt it, we're to obey, but that in the end it's God who is at work uh, in us that makes that even possible. So then he kind of dives into this idea of this commandment is not new, but it is new. Um, so the commandment is not new. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. So again, he calls them beloved again uh, as he begins to or continues to speak the truth in love. Uh, so he's been speaking of um, commandments, but now he focuses down to one specific commandment that he's going to talk about. Um, and the context uh, would say that that is love of the brethren. And he's going to kind of move into that. It's very similar to uh, Romans 13 where it says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So it really makes sense that you take all these commandments and you sum them up uh, in terms of loving uh, your neighbor as yourself. And he says it's uh, from the beginning, um, so it's, it's not new. And in one sense, John uses that from the beginning to be kind of at the beginning of one's faith. Like 1 John 3.11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Or 2 John verses 5 and 6, I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So a lot of times John kind of uses it like, you know, from the start of your faith, your walk of faith, you've heard this. This is not something new. Um, you know, in another sense, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, 
but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's the first time it's put in those love your neighbor uh, terms. Of course, we won't go through it, but where Jesus was teaching that and somebody's, and it says, who was trying to justify himself, said, well, who is, who is our neighbor? Probably hoping it'd be a really small little category, and uh, Jesus then goes from there to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan and then says, who is his neighbor? And it was the Samaritan who was uh, a hated group, but uh, they were, he was the one who had actually helped the man, and so he was the neighbor. And then he goes even further um, where he talks about loving even your enemies. Uh, he says in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So he's saying again that unbelievers do love after a fashion, but it's just those who love them. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, um, in a sense, it's not a new commandment at all. It was in the Old Testament. <clears throat> it was something that Jesus uh, deepened and enlarged on. And then it's also uh, something that they, the people who were receiving this letter, had heard from the beginning of their faith. And so, in that sense... It's not a new commandment. But then he says, On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's going to, and I think we won't dive into that, but he's going to begin to talk about, so here's a sense in which it really is new uh, in Christ and in you. I think we'll stop at that point. Any last questions, comments before we do? All right. Well, I, I do find um, this rich going, but not easy going. So thanks for staying with it. And let me close this in prayer. Father, we do thank you again for all the different ways you communicate with us, ways that are... Uh, thick and dense and yet very rich, uh, others that uh, are a little easier going. Father, we do pray that you would help us to be uh, thirsty for your word, that we would uh, long to understand it, long to uh, dig deeply in it and to uh, get what you have for us there. And Father, help each one here to be able to, to do that, to apply it, to uh, truly seek to love you in a way that keeps your commandments, that seeks to know what pleases you and by your spirit to carry that out. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.